This is The President's Neck is Missing. Your quasi-intellectual guide through today's modern world with host Rurik Yakel and special guest Neo Guevara. Warning, language, content, listen at your own risk. Here now is Rurik Yakel. Jeez, I, you know, you never know how to start a podcast, you know what I mean? You're just like, is it going to like, like double dutch? And you just watch it, like you just jump, jump in when you, you just jump, jump you just jump in, in right? All right. Uh, hey guys, uh, Rurik Yakel here. Uh, welcome to Be Kind, Please Rewind. The President's Neck is Missing weekly rewind segment of all things old and new into pop culture. Here we are to expound on the newest movies, trailers, and even Quantum Leap Us back into the past to some of the forgotten films and TV shows that spoke to our generation. Speaking of the past, Neil Gravera finds himself leaping from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. Welcome, Neil. <laughs> Good day. I, uh, you know what? I, that's it. I always like that. Was a nice quantum reference. That was a nice quantum reference. You know, it's it's a good. It was a good show. It was a good show. And uh, who doesn't like Scott Bakula? <laughs> I know he always had that like that one little gray strip in his hair, <laughs> kind of like Bonnie Raitt. He also had a face <laughs> that looked like you could never disappoint him. He, he he was the least excited human being in the world, and you, you, there's nothing you could say to that guy that would ever I, rock him. You know what? I I can't top that spot. Scott Bakula comment. That's pretty good. Um, uh, before we get going, I, I I do want to say that I am a little upset that uh, our show, The President's Neck, is missing. Uh, we didn't change it to The President's Lawyer's Head is Leaking. <laughs> that's fair i'm a little upset that we missed that bus but uh anyway before we got on here um about a couple minutes ago i uh apparently my facebook was um hacked and uh so i had to like quickly scrounge to change passwords and there was a whole bunch of things that you have to do and you know it reminded me of those yeah and it reminded me of those like you know those early early uh or like mid 90s movies like you know when the internet was new and like say the movie the net or like hackers and <laughs> yeah and and the, and the best action scene of those movies is how fast the other guy can out type the other guy <laughs> totally and the computers right. and the computers make noises that no computer in the world has ever made when you type right and the operating systems or their interfaces are just like things that actually like they do not exist but they totally. make it and there's always a measure bar that's letting you know, like, you've got this much time left. <laughs> right, right, exactly. For I, everything. I always, uh, right, absolutely. Like, there was somebody out there that created that interface for that specific reason. I thought that was always fantastic. I well, don't know. It's pretty cool because look how many films used it, man. Like, it was like, it's, it's, it's still a thing like, in today's world. <laughs> it is still a thing. It's kind of weird, isn't it? No one it's evolved like, from that. Right. Yeah, it's like like when somebody's downloading, like putting a virus into another computer. I think they did Independence Day, and it's and they're like, it actually says like uploading like alien virus, whatever it is, like buffering. Yeah, and there's people sweating in the background, like ooh, the tension. You can just cut with a knife. It's just watching this bar get bigger. No, absolutely. Uh, Well, hey, thanks, Neo. Uh, Thanks for having uh, or coming on uh, here today, so we can do uh, be kind. Please rewind. Thanks for bringing up hackers because uh, that's where you, you get to see Angelina's boobies in that movie. Oh, see, I didn't know that. Yeah. Did you actually know that she signed, uh, much like Brooke Shields and a couple of other actresses back in the day, but she signed that uh, parental release form where 
um, at her age, even though she wasn't legal age, she was allowed to be considered an adult and live on her own. And she oh, showed her emanci- like she got like what was that emancipation? an emancipation? Yeah, right. and uh, she she did it solely for a role in Cyborg Two. Yes, a oh. sequel to a Jean Claude Van Damme. She uh, she had high hopes. She, she was high- seventeen and was like, <laughs> I want to show my tits in this film. So, mom and dad, you are mom and dad no more. Let well, the booby be- free. To be fair, John Voight's a real piece of shit. <laughs> so well, just, that's just what... look at his lower jaw. That's all you got to do. Like he sets <laughs> his character right there. Yeah, he always had a nice head of hair. So we'll give him that. <laughs> it's got more, more than what I got. So, um, so hey, interesting thing uh, that came up. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. Uh, HBO Max released uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League recut for 2021. Um, they're a little black and white. Uh, he's been kind of hinting about this for quite a while now, obviously from the, uh, the first piece of shit justice league that was hacked up by Joss Whedon. Um, when, uh, Zack Snyder took time off because his uh, daughter committed suicide. So <laughs> how's that for a uh, opening? <laughs> <laughs> quite lighthearted i mean yeah i went right first that. i was i started a little like i was a little downtrodden i was like ah you know i don't know about podcast tonight and that perked me right up i'm like sweet like here's how we here's how we start talking i thought you'd enjoy that okay so uh so you watched it <laughs> what did you uh what did you think of the the trailer and just maybe all around give me your give me your thoughts <laughs> Um, they already did a Watchmen trailer. <laughs> that's that's my thought. <laughs> yeah, there was already a Watchmen trailer like twelve or thirteen years ago. They basically it's it it literally reminded me of the Watchmen trailer, but done in black and white. Or it, and it wasn't even black and white. It was kind of like this, like a rustic kind of like a gold coppery black and white. These weird hues in there. It was like it was like blending. 300 with the watchman as far as like a visual aspect goes and then putting this uh, you know hallelujah song attached to it like it's you know this is a deep impactful spiritually awakening film that's going to make you resonate like you're you know an an evangelist in a church singing praises to god like well look and i don't mind a really I don't mind a really good epic um, and I don't mind getting stirred up maybe, um, but it's, you're right. Like I, I a, it's you know, too contrived. About- like, like I, I, I agree with you. I like getting worked up. I like when films are like, Whoa, when my hair stands up and I'm like, I'm dying to see that. Right. But that one was like, it felt so preachy and gaudy. And I don't even mean in the religious aspect with the song. Hallelujah. I meant in its visual presentation, it was like staring at a big shiny chain. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. Well, and like the way I always saw it, like DC heroes were always very godlike. But the thing with like, I guess, Zack Snyder and this particular trailer um, is, you know, you know, there's some there's some directors out there that have a really great grasp on music to use in their movies. And I'll cut just two off the top of my head. Uh, Scorsese was. Yeah, I see. Yeah. The man Tarantino. uh, Scorsese always had uh, a rich tapestry of uh, songs to use, even when you're, you know beating the shit out of a guy with a bat or something you know you're fucking stabbing somebody in the neck with a fucking pencil um, but there's always something there's always a, a a theme of music and the choices is right in those two guys and there's lots more uh paul thomas anderson but get back in on track this it seems to be is does he have a, a, a earworm Zack snyder is just can't get this song out of his head it's like yeah this i used i used it once so i'll just i'll just keep using again then they'll know it's me 
every single time and they'd be like, oh, hey, it's another Zack Snyder film. And, you know, there's there's attachment to things like that. Right. So I can see it as like a ploy. I get it. Um, but I mean, again, you're looking at some like super contrived formulaic, like appealing to a particular, you know, you're trying to you're trying to appease every single audience member in existence out there. And you like you can't cram everyone's perspective happiness into one fucking film. It's just never going to happen. Right. And you know what used to piss me off, too, is I hated watching movies like a trailer would come out and in the particular trailer they'd have a certain song. And then you're like, oh, like, you know, it's like that again, that earworm. And then you go watch that movie and they don't have the song at all in there. And you're like, you know, fuck you guys. Totally. <laughs> it was like it was like when I watched the first Transformers and they made the Transformers sound from the cartoon one time. And then every single time they transformed after that, nothing. And I was like, you fucking sons of bitches. Right. And look, there's an unwritten rule. And, and we're going to chalk Transformers up to a superhero movie because it's all the same shit. Um, but what I'm saying is, you mean it's CGI? Unwritten... Well, yeah, exactly. And it's an, there's an unwritten rule that every time your hero comes on screen or they're about to tear some fucking ass, that's the that that's when you the theme song gets you know uplifted and you get to hear it, and that's what everybody wants, right? Totally. So if you're gonna like deny people that kind of shit, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's like it's kind yeah. of a letdown. It's like having like... Superman back in the Richard Donner era, and then you know, just you know, not not giving you that. what you want. But like, don't blow it up in the trailer. Like, you, you like leave. Like, here's the thing about the trailer too: is it's just it's it was literally okay. And and this is gonna sound fucking really redundant, but in most trailers, when okay, trailers are just clips of scenes, right? Essentially, sure. just clips of fucking scenes. But this trailer was like clips of clips of scenes. You know what I mean? Like nothing happened in any single thing. It was just build up scene after build up scene after build up scene after build up scene with no delivery, no nothing to really show you, um, you know, what you're kind of in for. It gave you no glimpse as to what kind of blockbuster, spectacular extravaganza, visual feast you're going to, you know, gorge yourself on. It was just like, here's a guy, he's flying, here's a dude. And a, you know, like everything was so passe. I yeah, I think there were what they were obviously attempting to do was to show them that the, the stuff we have on on file, the things that we have in the can, it is just not just weed and shit that went through you know a series of uh, um, you know touch ups and and reshoots and stuff like that. And I think they're just trying to show you that hey, there was a plan for this large epic three and a half hour movie that was in the in the constraints of you know Zack Snyder's mind, and and then they went. Um, you know, when he took a leave of absence, they gave it to Josh Wheaton and they're like, oh, how about a whittle down two hours? And and look, the movie, I want to clarify, the movie's garbage anyway. I'm not I'm not suggesting that we're not I'm not trying to, you know, polish a turd here. But no, I, no, I, I am, get that. What I am interested in, what I am interested in is is do you think there there will be a, a very contrasting difference between these like do you think reshoots and and the structure can really give us something that you actually is a whole new movie. Do you, are you, is that what you're thinking? It, there's always that possibility. I don't I don't think that it's just a non-existent plausible thing. Um, Once Upon a Time in America is a grand example of that. Um, Ebert called it the worst movie of '84 when it got its whittled down. Um, cut from a different right. director when Sergio Leone re released it 
uncut by you know by you know his his version of the film it was hailed the best film of 1994 right. and, and, and those are right, two like complete hours, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah and those are two complete polar opposites so they yeah they took a they took a three hour and 49 minute film and they chopped it down to like you know an hour and 52 minutes like right. you are scrapping a ton of things that you know in the artists and in the creators and in the story you know right the screenwriters all the story involved you've you've chopped it down to like cole's notes you know what I mean? You can't really take in a film like that. And it showed in the reviews, right? So when you can have two polars like that for one movie and the same critics, you know what I'm saying? Then I feel that this has got a potential to to do the same thing. I mean, it's definitely a possibility. Will it? Uh, let's. I'll put it to you like this. It's not going to be the fucking Watchmen. And the Watchmen was awesome. You know what I mean? And that's an epic three-hour-plus movie, right? Absolutely. And I think because – and I've said this before. You know, Zack Snyder – I like the Watchmen too. But I think it's also because Zack Snyder knows how to work with adapted material as opposed to – taking taking an unadapted piece of material, creating a new storyline, creating a new new vision for something. Um, He's not very good at that. And and I want to – really want to take a big shit on like guys like Chris Terrio, the, the writers of um, justice league, um, these uh, Batman versus Superman, uh, right. Yeah. The, what is it? The fucking uh, rise of Skywalker. He did that. The last star Wars movie. He's just a shitty writer. <laughs> the guy, the guy, like I, I just can't get behind this particular, this time of write, writing style. Me neither. Um, it's never, even, even in trailers, it's never enticed me to the point where I'm like, Hey, I'm going to watch this with like, an attitude of open-mindedness toward it. And then when I do watch it, if I, you know, at anyone that I've like, I'll be honest with you, um, haven't seen any of those and any of them that I attempted to, I was like, okay, fuck off. It tried all those films try too hard. There's no real invoking of emotion. And if it is, it's not, it's not the acting. It's the fucking score and it's, and it's the, and it's the events taking place. It's not, you know, it's the writing of the story. It's not actually like the characters and, and well, the trail a lot of the time, you know what I, I mean? Absolutely. And you know, like, and I'm, and I'm sorry, Chris Terrio, if you're listening to this, but um, you know, the part of the issue is um, he's the writer that take, he would take things for granted. And what I mean by that is it's, you know, when you're writing a story, let's say with epic characters from the past, whether Superman, Batman, Star Wars, whatever it may be, he's relying on the fact that, well, I'm dealing with already these larger than life characters, these larger than life franchises. Um, so it's really, I just put it on the screen and people like it, people will buy it. Exactly. And, it's and, like and, a layup. It's it's already it's, laid it's up a, to be a success. A, exactly. It is such a, and it's a lazy layup because the stories suck. they're they're just terrible it's like here's a check here's an easy to go to check and i feel like it's the same thing with the actors now don't get me wrong there are some great actors who are you know in movies portraying in these films portraying characters but like bro come on man like if you mean to tell me that robert downey jr's you know best grossing film of all time is avengers the guy is on a caliber of acting that is exponentially fucking triumphs over that there are yeah, so many yeah. films even when he's a secondary character they yeah. completely kibosh that movie man like come kiss on. kiss bang bang kiss kiss bang bang exactly with Val is a is a is a fucking gem his 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 character and natural born killers stole the show from the yeah. two protagonists yeah. literally did literally the whole prison scene once once he enters in that's the movie now right up until the end where he gets he gets killed that's like he's he makes that whole section of film without him that would have been boring snooze shit and 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 i want to clarify like at least for myself uh i'm not suggesting that 
like the the people acting in in, in these big uh, stupid blockbuster movies, whatever, um, aren't aren't uh, aren't delivering uh, uh, the best they can in these performances. I, like I like Chris Evans. I think Robert Downey Jr. is a is a golden god. Um, they, you know, these people are, are are fantastic. But I agree, Chris Evans is his best performance. Like, is his best performance going to be Captain you know, America? Captain America? Right. Um, no, again. Captain America, like the sequel, Winter Soldier. I enjoyed that. It's it's a it's a good yarn, but you can't tell me that that's that's the highest of heights that he's he's reached. Well, and and that's what I mean. So now you've got these guys who have been the the put on the tights, and now that's where it's at, man. And like that's the blockbuster. That's the mega paycheck. That's and think about it too from like from a working guy's perspective you know like and this is where i try and put things sometimes like it's a job and sometimes as much as you love your passion there's days where you don't want to fucking work man and these guys right now (laughs) (laughs) it'd be better if there wasn't a camera too no um but like there's there's this situation where you've got someone who's like hey um we're gonna pay you you know tens of millions of dollars and you just got to stand in front of a green screen for like you know, 400 right. takes. That's a pretty easy fucking, you know, cha-ching in the bank, make a movie that will be rated high and revered because again, it's going to appease families, right? It's every family right. member will love this film. And every family member is basically in the, in the movie market aspect, every demographic. Cause that's who they're, that's who they're going for. Families spend the money. If you, know, one guy going to the theater doesn't give a retail value and it's five, you know, two parents and, you know, three kids, right? So it's, it's marketed for that kind of um, audience. And, and, and therefore I feel like, you're not going to get the best out of Robert Downey Jr. Even if he's trying his best, you won't get the best out of him putting him in front of a green screen. That's not that guy's I, prowess. He I, need, I have he a, needs to be on location. He needs to be immersed in things. You know what I mean? And that's when you see the, the people's best works is when they're they're in the moment and they're doing their method acting and they're they're no longer themselves. They're they're still themselves because we all bring those traits to whatever we do, no matter how we, you know, chameleonize or what we, what we take on, you know, you can, you can play, uh, you know, Abe Lincoln, but you're still going to be Rurik Yackel doing Abe Lincoln. You know what I mean? Like there's no matter how much Abe you immerse yourself in and all the makeup, it's still, you know, those tiny little nuances and those little aspects that only Rurik would be able to bring to the role. Like if you look at Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill, who else is going to deliver? You know what I mean? Uh, and, and and the reason why he was able to do that is because it's Gary Oldman bringing that role to life. It's also interesting too. like, I, I mean, I have a guilty pleasure. I like watching uh, uh, Tony Stark in the movie, the judge. I mean, uh, Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> but I, I do like the judge. Um, I find that maybe it's because I'm a sucker for courtroom dramas and, and maybe just, I like conflicts between uh, father sons um, but I can't help as much as I like that movie. I can't help but think Robert Downey Jr. is playing Tony Stark, playing a lawyer. I, I, he's got that. It's almost like Robert Downey Jr. As much as I adore him, um, he almost has taken upon himself to go. You know what? I'm it, Tony Stark is a persona. People seem to like it, and I'm going to put that forth into my acting nowadays. And that's kind of sad because in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Um, and this is prior to him being uh, Iron Man. Oh, yeah, it's um, a great, you know, a great movie. He was still Robert Downey Jr. It's a great movie, but he wasn't Tony Stark in that movie. 
But everything after, once Marvel got their claws into them, it, it he, he, I don't know, he's Tony well, Stark in a movie now. You and know, and I, I see that. Maybe, like, I get where you're coming from, but I also think that there's a part of it that he was always Tony Stark. And then he found the role and like he got cast in it. Like, because he is, there are a lot, like, right. look at his, like, look at this guy. Like, look at his lifestyle. Look at the history that we know as being just people, you know, getting news clippings and shit like that. But he's had a very Tony Stark esque life when it comes to, you know, like his <laughs> type crowds and his, you know, money and his partying and all of that kind of stuff. So I think it was, it was an easy thing for him to slip into because it's always something that's kind of been inherently a part of Robert Downey. So then once he was able to get that and then it sold and it was bang on and it becomes successful and he feels, you know, probably, you know, like really empowered by the role because it's so natural to him. It'd be hard to turn that off. I think in a lot of circumstances, you know what I mean? Just because he's still, it goes back to that thing, right. Robert Downey Jr. Even though he's being whatever role he's being, is still going to bring that Robbie, Robert Downey Jrism. But now we've associated Robert Downey Jrisms with you know Tony Starkism, and and then we've got this kind of muddle, right? Where that's all we see. It's no different than Mila Kunis. All I hear is Meg, and I can't stand it. Right, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, so it's interesting. Uh, I realized today that, um, and I saw a trailer for this, and just to stay on the same theme right now, uh, so Wonder Woman, that's been basically, after years of setbacks, this thing was supposed to be like like last two years, um, one got set back because they wanted to wait for in a release time. Uh, the second time, obviously, COVID. Um, I'm not here to talk about Wonder Woman. I could give two Thank God. Clocks. I was like, no, um, he's but, not about to talk it, about Wonder Woman. It, 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 we're not, definitely not talking about that. Um, what I am interested in is that, so it's coming out in theaters and it's going on HBO Max, the streaming HBO Max uh, Christmas Day. And I thought that was interesting. And the reason I thought it was interesting, because think about all those movies in the can right now. And I can I'll list off a couple um, that are potentially sitting waiting for releases um, and to get out there to the main public through theater release. But during these dark, dark COVID times, probably won't see the light that we thought they were going to see. And, you know, one of them comes back to Jesus. It was like over a, over a year since I saw that great Jason Reitman uh, Ghostbusters trailer that they were uh, releasing. Uh, it's interesting to me that the, the characters, obviously, that they used in this in this new Ghostbusters, uh, I can't remember it's Ghostbusters Reborn, or I can't remember the name of it. Um, I'll have to look that up. Um, but I guess it was, you know, obviously, some of the kids from uh, Stranger Things, the net, popular Netflix uh, show. And I kind of laugh because these poor fucking kids are yet now stereotyped into this world of, hey we're going to put you in everything that is portrayed in the 1980s. You're going to throw back every motherfucking thing for every single one of us in, in their forties. We're pretty much, we're going to make you the Goonies right. is what we're going to do. You're, you're all Corey. Exactly. And Corey right. Hames Everybody's a Jerry O'Connell and you're a fucking Will Wheaton. I'm sorry to tell you this, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's. <laughs> <laughs> Will, Will Wheaton, which is, 
You know what's funny is you can throw Jason Bateman into that category too, except that guy actually yes, rose to the occasion. And like, you know what I mean? And like, he was like, you know what? I'm just going to be a great fucking actor for the rest of my life. Fuck this child actor shit. I'm going to carry on. And, and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to keep progressively getting better every single year, every single well, and, thing and I do. Bateman. I like, I'm, like, look, I love Ozark. I think it's a fantastic TV show. I, I, I'm completely addicted to it. Uh, it's one of the finest things that's on Netflix right now. Um, but and I'm saying this with praise. But when he's on, a, you know, when he's on a on a show, when he's on a movie, whatever, and he pulls, you know what role he's playing. Like he's got, he's a straight man. He's got one, he's got one way in order to make this movie get delivered. And he does it better than most. Like, well, and again, this is, I I think this ties perfectly into like characters always bring themselves to a role. It's impossible to not, you know what I mean? And, and he, well, and, and, and here's the thing, like he's, he's Jason Bateman and everything. He is just like, you know, De Niro's De Niro and everything, you know, that he does, they get typecast and the majority of their most, you know, prolific performances are that typecast role. But when you look at Bateman and you're looking at things like Arrested Development and all of his other programs and all of his comedic work, and then you go into Ozark, that is uh, this amazing leap. And he's still Bateman and he still brings this subtle comedy to it. Like, for example, when in, spoiler alert but in in episode one when he's driving to go confront his wife's lover and she's there with him and then he's talking to himself as he exits the car he's like oh you're gonna divorce me yeah well you try to take me to court you will lose and right as he says that he's talking to himself splat body hits the ground and then he's like he's like uh totally shocked you know in in a state of shock it turns and walks away and then realizes wait that's the guy who's been fucking my wife goes back and takes a closer look. And I thought like, that was a great, that was a great delivery of like, Oh yeah, that was Jason Bateman talking to himself. Like, Oh, you can take me to court. Yeah. Well, you will lose. You know what I mean? And his little like Jason Bateman way. And then all of a sudden, like, boom, his character. Also, snapped back. And, you know to, what I mean? Like to, it was crazy. Uh, totally jump on what you're talking about. And, and um, there's certain, there, <laughs> there's you know there's certain there's certain actors out there that um you just can't help but like them because uh, you know it's that frame of it's that frame of reference that jason bateman's one of them and paul red's another and you one of the things i'm trying to do is you feel like you go have a beer with these guys and they're like actually really, like just like even on screen you're like i would be friends with that guy uh, Paul Rudd, another one. I would be friends totally. with that guy. That guy seems like a normal, everyday guy, and he seems fun, and he seems like you know they got they want to Bob Odenkirk. Yeah, Bob Odenkirk. Bob right. Odenkirk, who I had the I had the um, awesome pleasure of meeting, and he is a really chill, humble, cool guy. Snap a pic with you, shoot the shit. It was it was great, and uh, I was the only one to recognize him, and you could see he was kind of like. Like I leaned in, I, I won't, I won't get into the scenario, but basically uh, he had to put something away right by where I was standing. I did not recognize this dude. Lots of people coming and going at this place that I had worked at. And then he drops this thing in this basket and I look at him and I lean in and I'm like, I, I look around everywhere and I'm like, Hey, uh, are you Bob Odenkirk? <laughs> and he looks around just as suspicious as I am. And he's like, yeah, he's like, he's like, yeah. Yeah, I am. And I'm like, dude. And right then and there, I'm like, man, I, you know, I start praising all, you know, from the show yeah, yeah. to all of his cameos to all of the writing that that guy's yeah. done. It was amazing. Smart guy. But he's one of those dudes 
Yeah, definitely. In my, I think he's a comedic genius. To be oh, honest, very with smart you. he's an underrated comedic genius. But when he steps into a role, you can't help but love the guy. Like Saul Goodman is a greasy, slimy criminal defense attorney that you love to death. You want that guy to be your fucking lawyer. You know what I mean? Like he's just he's just that kind of a dude. And so I think you know Jason Jason Bateman's the same Michael J Fox you know there's just a lovable gem of a dude like how could you hate Michael J Fox if anyone hates Michael J Fox yeah, you fucking was, email I was us just, I'll like, meet up reading, with you reading uh, an article about the new book Michael J Fox has coming out and uh it's it's really it's it's a different tone from his others as he says it's uh he's had a really shitty last couple of years and with covid and stuff but he's um it's it's I guess a I guess a work of um, the, the last struggles that he's had in the last. I mean, in 2018, he had a, a fucking tumor on his spine. Um, it was benign, but he had a they they removed it, but he had to learn how to walk again. This guy's had Parkinson's That's right. since like, he was 29. Uh, every yeah. time a guy like Michael J. Fox is on screen, um, he, he, you're just happy that you know he's Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, no, I, I was saying this all the time, and this is no disrespect to 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 Mr. Terry Fox, but for me in my generation, right, like like Michael J. Fox is like my childhood icon, Terry Fox, like this guy who, against all impossible odds, keeps on fighting and keeps on doing what he loves, and he like honestly by all by by everything that I could ever you know know about the guy from as distant as as he and I are as human beings, he's yeah, just a gem yeah. of a dude. And he brings he brings that he brings that lovable quality into every you know every role every screen you know presence that he's ever you know given to us and it's you're right like there's just those guys where you're like man I want to hang out with you Matthew McConaughey is another dude I would love to kick it with Matt McConaughey he seems like he would just be a fun and, chill and ass you know motherfucker. Interesting thing too is uh, Matt Matt McConaughey is he's got some really he's a pretty deep guy uh, he's got that new book out Green Lights um, I haven't been able to tackle that book yet but i saw an interview with him talking about green lights and i thought man that's right up my fucking alley um just anybody doesn't know green lights uh, i'm gonna paraphrase real quickly is um we all have green lights in in our lives and what it does is it's about acknowledging the green lights allow us to go and proceed ahead and we're all stopped by the yellows and the reds um he goes but you know when you get to reflect and look back those yellows and reds became green lights in just in hindsight. And, you know, he, he's got this great, uh, I mean, you know, when he was originally, you know, brought introduced into Hollywood, I think everybody thought he was just like this, you know, beachy bum and he played it really well. The shirtless, uh, you know, basically the living Spicoli and, you know, he's obviously a, a lot deeper than that. He's uh, got some insight. And I mean, I'm intrigued by people like that. I think that I think those are people that, you know, you could sit and have a fucking Corona and be cool with them. Well, and he's, he's got an edge to him. He's got like this is what I've always I've always noticed that people who have depth, you have to have an edge. You can't just be deep and not have an edge to you. It doesn't work that way. And, and the reason why it doesn't work that way is because you can't have depth and not be sharp within your depth. It's just, it's completely impossible. And that edge is what takes you there. Because if you're deep, a lot of people aren't, don't right. have that depth. They're not deep. A lot of people are super shallow. So when you start expressing your depth to people, what's the first thing that people say? Oh, this guy's edgy. He's out there. And, McConaughey's got that edge. When you look at his performance as Rust Cole, 
and True Detective. Um, that that for me, it, it's up there with uh, William Cutting. It's up there with Bud White. It's up there with a bunch, you know, John McClane. It's up there with a bunch of these hard man, tough as nails, good guy hero roles that the character is just unfuckwittable. And that that's his portrayal there. Right. Yeah. No. It, yeah. So, so, so when I, when I, when I look at like, you go from that, right. And then you take it back to, all right, all right, all right. And, and, and everything in between how to lose a guy in 10 days, then reign of fire, the scene where, the scene where he's punching, the scene where he's punching out Christian Bale in Reign of Fire is one of the most visceral beatings I've ever seen on film. And the noise that he's making with every single punch as he lands and drops it on Christian Bale's face is just it took it to a level, a depth that other actors wouldn't have done. They wouldn't have made this crazy growl upon impact, right? Like I, think, just the, crazy. I think the cool thing too about him is that he I mean, he doesn't denounce any of the movies he does. Like he he uh, he, he looks at things from you know, the all right, all right, all right, to, um, you know, all these, you know, early 2000s, uh, you know, rom-coms that he did. And, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't look back and shit on them. He, he, you know, he acknowledges, hey, they, like, they, they pay bills and they allow me to continue working. And, and he's, well, he's an artist. If you had fun doing the movies, they're like, hey, let's go. We're going to film a movie called Sahara. It's basically you hanging out at a beach when we pay you millions right. of dollars. Like, oh, no. Oh, and you're going to make out with Salma Hayek. Yeah, I'll take a rain check, yeah, boys. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, artistic like, integrity come comes first. Um, did- but let's, let's not forget that that, guy, that guy's first breakthrough performance was in a super powerful drama at a time to kill. Yeah, it was really great. So – and. It, and and he was phenomenal in that as well. And and you're right. When he first came into Hollywood, people were looking at him um, very much as like this, you know, this pretty boy kind of guy. And they didn't really give him well, a lot of, you know, um, credibility outside of that. But then he comes through with a time to kill. And it's just well, like, I remember- whoa. And I feel like that Brad Pitt's similar too, man. He was he was looked at as just another pretty boy in the game. And then he started banging out these crazy fucking dramas and thrillers that were just like, whoa, man. You, you're you you're so much more well, than this. I also remember when uh, McConaughey came out in Time to Kill. Uh, was that 95 that came out? And... In okay, actually, sure, right? maybe. Um, and it was interesting that I remember they, they started comparing him to uh, one of my favorite all time actors, uh, and he makes a delicious salad dressing. Ninety six. We were both right. Okay, we were both that's all right. We're, we're in the time frame. We're in the mid mid nineties. Um, yeah, no, Paul yeah. Newman is what he was compared to. Paul Newman, I knew. Yeah, you were well, say he's the only one that makes salad dressing as a celebrity. But it, it, the interesting thing is that <laughs> really. I have his tomatoes. I have his fucking tomato sauce in my fridge right now. Newman's <laughs> own. I uh, and I'll tell I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I would never buy mayo called Newman's own. <laughs> the uh, I also remember Brad Pitt was compared to Robert Redford. Uh, I do remember that. Just, it was, um, I always said like there there is the. I mean, Robert Redford. Yeah, absolutely, Robert well. Redford always had. Uh, Robert Redford didn't like taking roles that portrayed him as anything less than perfect. And now I'm not saying that's completely all about Brad Pitt. Obviously it's not going to be hundred percent exactly like that. Um, But Robert Redford never took roles that say Paul Newman would take. Paul Newman always wanted, like when he was in the verdict, he wanted to like, Oh, you play a drunk. And Robert Redford was offered that role. And he was like, well, he's like, I have an idea. How about that movie? But I'm not a drunk. (laughs) 
it's like no you're right, missing exactly. the point it's, you know it's, it's you know you look at robert redford he does the natural right and it's it's literally about like this demigod of baseball player and it's just it's always americana and he's just the righteous guy and I thought it was more of a movie about a bat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, a magical yeah, fucking yeah, lightning wonder, yeah, wonder piece boy. of wood. Yeah, right. Uh, hey, let me ask you this. Simpsons <laughs> did a brilliant spoof on that. Did you uh, Did you see the trailer? Uh, let it go. Uh, Kevin Costner, Diane Lane. Um, yes. Basically, Mom, Pa, Kent are going to, before Clark came down, they're going to go kick some shit. Um <laughs> but, like, like, that's what it seems like to me um I, you know I, i'm joking aside uh a kevin Costner is one of my all-time favorite americana actors um he plays the every guy very well uh i always thought i yeah i, he like was, I mean the cliche aside and feel the dreams but he is the stereotypical american farmer and uh you know the old baseball um you know he he knows how to kind of play to the to that the basic level of every man in America. He's he's the small town right. country boy that married his high school Ooh. sweetheart and they pumped out two point five kids and they had right. a nice white picket and, fence. Yeah, that's, and he and he does him. it better than most. Uh, he he really does. His him he I honestly feel like he would have been the most prolific modern western actor of our day if only he would have, you know, niched himself a little more there. You know, Open Range was great. Wyatt Earp was great. Um, unfortunately, you know, Hollywood does this thing where it's like, hey, we're going to put out two movies in the same theme at the same time and see which one does better. Oh, Tombstone kind of won did. that and, one. And, and it's so, interesting, like, you know? you know, Kevin Costner, for all the great movies he does, and sometimes he does these small little pieces um, that you kind of forget about oh, <laughs> or shit. pieces of shit. Um, but then he tries <laughs> to take on, I, I like, I'll be honest, I think it's his bigger roles he takes that is the thing that hurts him the most and uh one of them is the the you know the postman this is right off of he after, after, see and i like that movie i, like, I, I like really like that movie i like the premise mainly mainly will right. paxton oh, sure will paxton yeah, does i was like tom me. petty <laughs> <laughs> hey weren't you a musician back in the day yeah. that was a was like a maverick scene like but here, here's what's funny is that I always thought like like okay Tom Petty always kind of reminded me of Kevin Costner and so did Don Johnson and then you see them like in all these films together like Tin Cup I was like hey it's like a movie about two brothers or what and then it, like you know, and then when you listen to Tom Petty's music and his Americana in right. music it totally matches up with like Kevin Costner's Americana in film know, it, you know it, what it, I mean yeah it kind of does and it's interesting you see where you said Don Johnson and now I'm in the fucking throes of okay so I watched uh harley davidson the marlboro <laughs> man the other night and Fuck yeah you know, i'm always reminded now this is interesting i've watched that movie countless times since that movie's been released in, in the early 90s now i know again i don't know the date on this yeah neo you might want to look this up while i'm talking 91 i'm pretty sure it's 90 or na- 90 okay. or 91 you know what but it be because of uh, said, because of uh, <laughs> we're not speculating here. We have the we have the Google. <laughs> You're right, Mister McGoogle um, over here. So anyway, uh, what's interesting about it is I've seen that movie countless times, and I don't know why that movie ninety one ninety one movie speaks 91. to me in a couple of different ways. But I never realized how much I enjoyed the scene 
of them up on top of the Las Vegas hotel and they're all getting shot at. But I, I do appreciate the dialogue between Mickey Rourke and Don Johnson as they're getting shot at. And Mickey Rourke has this grandiose idea of jumping off the fucking roof and hitting the pool. And the level of, of confusion and fear in Don Johnson in his dialogue I have, I have to tell you, well done, boys. That's a, it's such a great scene. I don't know. Who, it's again, it's kind of one of those movies that you go and take your woman at a drive. You go to the dual drive-ins. You know what I mean. You got you got some yeah. greasy food and you got some great killer popcorn, and that's a good yarn during that time. It's an, like, Twizzlers. You yeah, it's I miss those days of those old drive-in movies that. Like Tremors, remember Tremors? And, oh, bro, fucking that's phenomenal a phenomenal film. It's like Big Trouble in Little China. Like Big Trouble in Little China. No, it's okay. Those Sorry. are drive-in movies. Those are designed to a, a totally. throwbacks of those great movies of the fifties. You know what I mean? Like, I'll save everybody the suspense. Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, not a complex piece, but what I have, I did find interesting, and that I I didn't really pay attention to until recently is this movie is supposed to be set in this futuristic dystopian world. <laughs> and, and yet I was like, they don't, they don't <laughs> set that premise. So by the time like space guys come out with photon rifles and these weird trench coats, you're like, Hey, what the fuck is Thank going you. on they, they here? They really don't set that tone very well. And you're right. They haven't. No. You just think you're hanging around a bunch of shitty bikers the whole movie. Absolutely. But then they watch it again, and they start they start introducing this new level drug. And the uh, Chelsea Field is the is the police officer, and she tries to explain what this drug does. I I, I also like that uh, Chelsea Field play uh, Virginia Slim. Uh, that was her. That was her name in the movie. Virginia that, Slim. That was, uh, the, yeah, that was that was pretty good. I don't even know what happened to Chelsea Field. Yeah. I, I remember her from last uh, the last Boy Scout. She was Bruce Willis's wife, and then uh, in this movie, and then I don't know. She kind of you know dropped to the nineties wayside. That's I right. Guess. I actually, you know what? So, aside from uh, Last Boy Scout, I can't place her in anything. Aside from Harley Davidson, the Marlboro Man, I actually can't place her in anything. <laughs> I know it's really, and, and uh, I, I can ask Mr. Belvedere uh, here, but um, I'll save that for another day when we explore Chelsea Fields. I would have liked to explore Chelsea Fields back in the yeah. day. <laughs> yeah, way better than Sally Field. <laughs> <laughs> she also has a motorcycle that looks like something you'd find from the old TV show Street Hawk. And <laughs> that's a great well, show. It was, like, it was the motorcycle equivalent of Knight Rider. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to have spin-offs there's always doubles man like when when there was butterfly effect going back to kevin costner there was dragonfly like there's always they always yeah, double it, was, it up now, it's way. interesting as a kid too because street hawk came out in 86 and i know that because i'm a dork and what's interesting about that is because you're cool and, as fuck buddy that's why you know, know that i was i was 12 years old street hawk came out and i thought to myself I think motorcycles are cooler than a fucking car that talks. And I didn't, I watched Knight Rider, but I didn't give two real fine shits about it until when Street Hawk came out. Like I'm the, I'm the kind of guy that buys GoBots instead of Transformers. 
Like, I'm so, the guy you, that goes you, you and buys the, the one that doesn't succeed. Every show that I've ever liked gets canceled. It doesn't make fucking three seasons. <laughs> I like watched one season of Nowhere Man back in 1994. And I was like, this thing's going to be on for eight years. It's like six episodes. Yeah. And then it went nowhere, <laughs> yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I nice to play uh, no, and that's, that's, you know, essentially, you know, my luck with that kind of stuff. So. You know, that 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 happens to me a lot too. There there has been okay. So HBO back in the day, once they once they realized what they had going with the the whole aspect of like Soprano style, you know, quote unquote quasi television, right? They started unleashing like a bunch of series like that, and the majority of them fucking flopped. They were sinkers. The one season, two season, but a lot of them. Just because they weren't picked up and I called them flops doesn't mean they weren't fucking good. Right. You know what I mean? Like a lot of them had great writing, great actors, set a really good tone, a really good premise. You can see that like, oh, my God, this story can start just spiraling into all these. Because what's great about storytelling, man, is when the shit, when you're watching dramas and melodramas and you're watching HBO series, it's when it gets out of fucking control. That's what we like seeing. What's fun about Ozark is how crazy their life has to spiral in order for them to survive. What's awesome about Breaking Bad is how crazy Walt's got to stoop to be able to keep shit somewhat. Yeah, on you're, the you're, up you're and watching up. the like, it's, like you're watching the the moral integrity of, of the characters gradually, gradually keep on bending backwards and backwards, and and their principles and all those things that you know set it up the show um, basically disintegrate. And, and I, I find that totally. so interesting as well. Even even if it's just you know uh, momentarily circumstantial and situational, it's still something that you see the characters battling with later with their personas as they develop. Because hey man, I mean once once you do it once, that's the bitch of the bunch. It gets easier after right. that, right? So you have these you have these characters to to be able to you know well. I thought I would be a lot more tore up than that. Um, Wendy from Ozark is a great example of a character like that. You know, she ends up, uh, and, and spoiler alert, I don't care if you're not yeah, hip yeah, to Ozark already. Yeah, yeah, bail out, bail out. Bail out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like, honestly, if you haven't watched Ozark and it's been on Netflix for however many years, you're, you're too stupid to listen to us. Just kidding, just kidding. We need all but, the viewership. <laughs> but <laughs> but this is esoteric movies, okay? This is esoteric broadcasting. But Wendy's character development, where she goes from, like, okay, yeah, so, you know, she's cheating on her husband. That's a honestly not a cool thing, but a common thing. It is not unheard of. It's not a far reach. But where she ends up going with her committal to her family and then realizing, you know what? I can actually be successful at this. That's her other thing is she wants to be successful. So where hubby is trying to look for an escape plan to not be involved in the lifestyle that he brought them all into, she's like, well, I don't think we're going to be able to go anywhere. So why don't we just become the fucking dons of right. this shit and and that's the opposite that you saw in breaking bad skylar white was like the worst part of breaking bad as a I, character i always right? appreciate that you and i go down a fucking rabbit hole like nobody's business um i, I just want to for viewers uh you know riding in this fucking uh convertible with us uh today it's uh i started this off with <laughs> let it go with kevin costner diane lane and uh and and here we are we're uh we're we're deep we're deep into it um <laughs> yep. so 
I digress. I'm going to backtrack us out. Um, did you did did you see that trailer for Let It Go? What, what, I did. did it? I did. I actually shared it with you, you clay bastard. <laughs> hey, it's all about production. All right, this is how you do your show. Um, what, what, what did you What did you think about that? Did, were you intrigued? I was very intrigued, um, and and it's for two main reasons. Um, number one, you've got Costner playing a role we're familiar with. Um, he's he's the quiet, soft-spoken um, badass that the bad guys don't know that they shouldn't be unleashing, and and this has that brooding feel. And it's not um, a Costner film in the sense where he looks like he's the all-out, you know, glory boy, good guy kind of thing. It's more of like the emergence of, let's say, his character in open range, but now as an older, you know, um, mellowed out kind of a family man where you can see he's got this hardness to him. He's got that edge, but he's still just this old dude married, you know, loves his wife and they're, you know, they're trying to get their grandkid back. Now, the premise and the tension created a feeling for me like uh blue ruin did um blue ruin right. great film um jeremy saunier directed um the same kind of what seems almost like a revenge yarn but what i like about it is bringing in a whole family of criminals the aspect of think about apprenticeship right <clears throat> we think about apprenticeship in every single trade that's out there these films take you into the realm of picture being raised by criminals Generation after generation after generation of hardcore, dedicated criminals. Hardcore criminals aren't your run-of-the-mill, I stole from the corner store, I robbed the gas station. These are the people who are willing to commit a fucking murder to cover their asses. They'll rob a bank. They'll jack a drug dealer. Hardcore criminals don't have boundaries, you know, when it comes to the acts they're willing to commit, you know, with the exception of maybe a couple on there. You know what I mean? Within the sexual realm of things. But when it comes to getting money and it comes to getting away with it, they're willing to do pretty much everything or anything. And this film kind of sets the tone with this family much like blue ruin did with this whole family of like this, these generations of these degenerate hardcore criminals. So when you take a humble, you know, seemingly back, you know, you know, country roots, you know, the Americana, good old boy guy like Kevin Costner and his sweet little, you know, you know, dainty getting older wife against people like this, you've now set this tone of good versus evil. And, Costner, Costner delivers oh, in that every time, Bruce, even when he is right, the evil guy. Right. You yeah, know what you I mean? Can't, yeah, you Mr. can't Brooks? help. Uh, I mean, you know, there's a sense of righteousness when. Now, the interesting thing about uh, you know, <laughs> you know, Costner and that, like I said before, um, you know, Wyatt Earp, um, to parts of its credit, just doesn't live up to the, the great piece of Tombstone. And and as much as I I, I can appreciate Kevin Costner in in these epic you know grandiose like he did this in the 90s was in a, a particular interesting time for costner um but i you know i think about like a perfect world with him and, and clint eastwood that was a fantastic movie um uh, it's a great, great film. film and you know then there's water world and and then there's you know uh and i think part of that like i think this 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 hype See? of i think when when he i think he almost over credits himself for this t- of the type of Americana person he is. And, and I, I, you see that in, in, in every role that recurs with him for sure. 
But here's the thing. Um, Waterworld was a film that seemed like that, but it wasn't at all. It had no flag or a pledge to allegiance to a country whatsoever. It was literally about this world and company, you know, just, it was the Mad Max on the ocean. Right. You know what I mean? And I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. I loved that movie. I thought its premise was fucking great. I thought the cinematography was awesome. I thought the, the stunts and the visuals were spectacular for its day. And I thought Dennis Hopper was great. Like if looking at it from a Mad Max kind of a perspective, it's it's the same kind of yarn. Like, you know, I'd throw a movie like Book of Eli in there, you know, all the Mad Maxes, Waterworld, Book of Eli, all those kind of dystopian futures where supplies are limited and resources or, you know, this or that, or we've got all kinds of, you know, ecosystem problems. Um it's just it's just super neat when you take some, the premise of that and they did it in reality and not green screen it on, you know, with, with, with a bunch of CGI. That's, that's actually what I appreciated. Most expensive movie. Yeah. In history right. I remember time. that. That was like, huge, a, that was like huge a huge flop. Big, I mean, I remember that just, that was, that was newsworthy back then. I think it was like $170 oh, yeah. million dollars to make or something. I should, uh, I think it was even more. I think it was like three hundred and ninety or three hundred and eighty million dollars. I, I think it was like the three hundred million mark. Mr. Google on uh, on Waterworld for sure. But like literally, that was a that was a uh, that was a, a a running joke in Hollywood. The, you remember the show Lois oh, and Clark? Um, yes, Dean Kane. Okay, they actually there's a scene where uh, Lois, Terry Hatcher, and the guy who played Jimmy Olsen, I can't remember his name. They're strapped up to this uh, cell tower, and um, this device on the cell tower is projecting a massive flood storm. Then basically, it's just going to create never-ending rain to flood the whole world. And they're standing up there, and they're like, "So what's going to happen? Like, is this never going to stop raining? No, and then everything's going to flood and dry, flood, flood and drown." And she was like, "Oh my god, it's like Waterworld, but less expensive." <laughs> And that was in, like, that was in a series scripted. You know what I mean? It was only relevant for like a week, like, but they put it in there in its timestamp forever. So I I asked Mr. Belvedere next to me here, um, hundred hundred and (laughs) seventy-five million. Waterworld was. I was five million off. One seventy. What did you say? That's pretty good. One seventy. And I said, and I said three hundred million. (laughs) All right, so you're you're not quick booking my 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 taxes. No, no, no. I'm I'm either really good at prices right or really bad. Right. Yeah, yeah, there's no middle ground. I'm either I'm either close to it by a dollar or I'm, yeah, or I'm way off. Or I'm like thousands of dollars off. How much how or in my case hundreds of millions. How much how much is How much is this Clorox bleach cost? 200 million dollars, Bob. <laughs> but everyone else put down a dollar yeah, so i win exactly. <laughs> um it, it's it's like those big inflated budgets are and, and you know they still go on today 175 million dollars uh, that, that obviously that movie was considered a failure for its time and it's interesting what is deemed a failure in in today's society by by these by these metrics and uh, just as a, I'll, I'll quickly throw one at you um, you know, I remember when uh, Man of Steel came out. Um, that's the uh, Zack Zack Snyder's version uh, to to open up the new DC universe, and um, yes. I think the budget to that was two hundred twenty five million dollars, and I had Belvedere confirm that. 
uh, $225 million that the movie ended up grossing, I think, like $600 million or something. Um, mo- they considered that wow. uh, it was modest success. And, you know, when you think about movies, um, Blue Ruin is a good example. We were talking about it earlier, and I want to just quickly bring that up. They ended up making a million dollars. on a. I think that movie cost them like $30,000 to make. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree. Grand. And then I also... And it was like a kick, it, it was a Kickstarter yeah, program that got that's, them to that first. That's that right. Point in the first place, I, I think so. about also remember the Blair Witch Project, and at the time, another thirty thousand dollar or twenty five thousand dollar. That at the time when, when Blair Witch came out, that ended up being the highest grossing film of all time, profitability wise. We're not talking about Star Wars and shit. We're talking about. Like at the actual, They're, right? The mark, the mark, uh, right. the black, yeah, the the margins were, were fantastic. And, uh, mm-hmm. it's just interesting. These movies that, you know, are their budgets are more increasing and stuff. And, um, join us also just so our viewers, uh, we're a podcast also on Tuesday, president's neck is missing where we talk about Hollywood is dead in depth of this type of situation. It's just interesting to me that, Going back to what we we're talking about, Kevin Costner, the, these people that kind of take on these these I guess big ideas, trying to lightning in a bottle their dances with wolves, and 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 yeah. it's kind of like you know it's it's I mean and, great and, analogy and, by and the way that was I awesome. think you can probably enjoy my frustration when I say this, but Dances with Wolves was a good film. But, but fucking rights but, it is. It's, it's, it is. it's an amazing film. But it wasn't as good as Goodfellas. And 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 and, 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 and that fucking won <laughs> the Academy Award. And now, yep. Anybody listening? I'm just I'm saying right now. I don't give two fine shits about the Academy Awards because it, it, it's all bullshit. But what I'll say is, it, it is. Celebrities are the only groups of people who have multiple ceremonies per year to pass. But I do find it interesting, back. and I find the fascination to the Academy Awards is how much they get it wrong. I think that's where my interest lies. Is is how it's it's. <laughs> I don't really care who gets the trophy. I really analyze that show for looking back historically of how absolutely wrong they get it when it comes to movies that have changed the landscape of our lives. Um, I mean, we can go all totally, the way back man. into the forties and we can go talk about Pulp Fiction in 94 fucking Forrest Gump. Um, but you know, the, the, some, you know, Pulp. I just realized something. That's why you hate Forrest <laughs> yeah. Gump so much. No, I- <laughs> That's why you hate Forrest Gump. It's because it beat Pulp Fiction. No, I get it, was it a, now. A historical piece of shit is what my it was a it was a spit. Historical fiction, though, is is that's that's what it, I mean. Quentin does that himself oh, too. This, I mean, in Glorious Bastards, this one was a right, this was a right turd of uh, American uh, uh, audacity. Of I mean, it was gross to watch, but. Um, it, it, like how we can white, like just kind of you know whitewash over. Yeah. Okay, okay, but Quentin Tarantino made a movie where they killed Hitler in a fucking movie theater, like I, the Holocaust I don't, didn't I don't happen. Think anybody complained about that. <laughs> no, no, I'm not like, saying. Hey, hey, if, if that's a good thing, absolutely. But also a historical piece of shit movie. <laughs> like historical fiction is historical fiction. It's just that it's 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 a historical comic book that's like, hey, these crazy things happen. All right, well, spin off. Okay. 
you that's know, a, that's on, a on show that for aspect. another time. Um, here, let me ask you this. Uh, you're a show for another time. <laughs> I love when you talk to me like that. Um, so you're uh, you, uh, ensemble cast, ensemble cast. Have you, cast. you've been watching, have you been watching the new unsolved mysteries on Netflix? Yes, I have. Thank you for bringing this up. Thank no, you. That's for what I'm here for. Up. Yes, I have. So, um, go ahead. so obviously I love, I love the original Unsolved Mysteries. Um, I mean, I'm talking about the creepy music, Robert Stack, looking like he's committed. They're like, he's the responsible for half of those <laughs> mysteries. Um, like those, those episodes. Seriously. When I was a kid growing up, oh, that yeah. theme music, I used to leave the TV on because babysitters weren't a thing in the 80s and 90s. I used to leave the TV on as my babysitter while I would sleep in my room. And I would keep it on like, you know, comedic channels, but always late at night. In would creep unsolved mysteries, and I would dart me awake with a frightening theme song, and I would rush into the living room to change the channel because I was petrified, petrified of Robert Stack, who looked like he murdered everybody that was ever murdered on yeah. that on that show. But it was a but, but it did what it was supposed to do. It got you intrigued. It showed you these really creepy, creepy unsolved mysteries that stuck in your head, and then they also resolved right. a lot of them. I liked it up until Dennis Farina. I liked Dennis well, Farina. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> No, he oh. became the host oh, after I Robert Stagg okay. He probably did. He was a Chicago <laughs> police officer. Say, maybe Dennis Freeman did kill some motherfuckers. I don't know. Did you, <laughs> did you watch Trial of the Chicago 7? So, so anyway. It's like, hey, man, the guy, <laughs> so, hey Dennis so Freeman anyway. was a badass. I, I'm okay with him killing a couple motherfuckers. It's cool. No, no. For sure. And so is he. He would be like, yeah, I killed the fucking <laughs> yeah, guy. Exactly, so what? That's exactly. Uh, Stop bears. The, uh, what I, what but, I, but, but like the new one. It's not narrated. And so this is what I loved, okay? So so Robert Stack, you can't beat that guy narrating creepy shit. He created Unsolved Mysteries, man. Literally, that guy. And I know he didn't, but his image and his voice and his narration was what that... And the theme song and the theme song what is what made it definitive. And then it got lackluster when they changed the theme song as the show modernized in the 90s. And then it got way out of touch with its originality and roots when it became Dennis Farina. Um, and I get that they they wanted to fill a void after, you know, Robert. And then that's totally understandable. So this version, this Netflix version of Unsolved Mysteries is actually the best possible way to go forward with talking about new mysteries and not being able to have Robert Stack as a narrator. We just won't have anyone narrate. We'll just interview people. Right. We won't have it. We won't have an interviewer it's, it's asking very, the questions. Uh, it, it's like the new modern version is very Dateline NBC. Where it's kind of like this, but I, it's, yeah, I it's love kind it. of got this like you know, um, I guess it's just like journalistic expose feel to it, as opposed to um, you know the old Robert Stack version where you feel you're also listening to a campfire ghost story. Well, well, yeah, and like I would actually, I would liken it personally for me more to like American Justice with Bill Curtis. Um, you've got that kind of narration of the facts going on, someone kind of helping to, you know, mansplain everything for you as it's taking place before your eyes. Whereas this new Unsolved Mysteries is a lot like a show called Obsession Dark Desires. Um, Obsession Dark Desires is a is a series based off of stalking and, and people who stalk people uh, up until the point of like their lives being completely ruined or, you know, attempted murders being taken uh, uh, toward them. And it does it the same way. You have someone introducing it. And then basically it's just 
real people, the people who are involved with what's, you know, being talked about, what's being broadcast, explaining the situation and, and someone asking questions that you don't hear and just you're, all you're getting is response. So the, the people who are involved are the ones now telling the story. And I personally, I love that because of the, the visceral authenticity of that, where you're having people's actual emotions. Because let's, let's be honest here, man. Robert Stack, Dennis Farina, those guys don't have emotions. <laughs> no, exactly. They're they're part. They're it, it, they're it's robots. They're, it's all robots. They're so there. desensitized they, to everything. They're like, and I cut his head off, and I they think, don't blink. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the uh, one of the uh, unsolved mystery season one episodes that uh, uh, transfixed people, myself, uh, that Ray Rivera. He was the aspiring uh, screenwriter. He was found dead in the empty room of that Belvedere Hotel in Baltimore. He. Like he by falling off the hotel and in through a roof, and he, he left the note behind, but it wasn't of like suicide variety. Yeah, and and, and that one's that's really awoken up like the Reddit boards, and uh, you know that was a creepy. That's a it it has all the sense of the movie The Game with Michael. Yeah, that's Douglas. a great film, and that's what it reminds me of. Fincher directed it, it seems that. Like right? he was, it's a David Fincher movie. Yeah. He did. That's why yeah. it's so amazing. Yeah, and 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 it's kind of one of those movies that it it requires a little suspension of uh, disbelief um, to to get through it for all these things to line up. Um, and there's lots of movies that that do that in in, in the course of uh, filmmaking. Uh, but this real life murder, or there's a real life, I guess, um, yeah, mystery. Um, that one to me was probably the the standout of season one. Um, I, I, I don't know exactly how this guy, like how he got where he ended up. Well, and, 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 and neither does anybody else forensically. <laughs> well, that, and that, and that's the thing, right? Like some people are saying it was like some elaborate scheme in which the company, um, th- like this, the, this is just, uh, the, the theories that are out there. Some people are saying that this company that he was involved in with one of his best friends, they had this elaborate kind of scheme going and made him go through all these paces. Um, but again, I mean, I, I, none of this I, I, is, is obviously factual or it's all speculation. See, and that's, what's great about unsolved mysteries is it gives you a seed plants it. And then you're like, oh, shit. And it depends on how you water it to see which direction it grows. But like, but that's what I loved about the whole show was that it wasn't like America's most wanted where it's like, we got to get this guy. This is what's going on. There's, they're literally talking about things that are old, that are current, that are, you know, the, the timeline doesn't matter. It's just these really unique, creepy, like it's, it's every episode is creepy. It's not like, whereas American, you know, America's most wanted and all that shit is you like your run of the mill stuff. This guy robbed a bank. This guy did that. Or they kidnapped so-and-so. This is that shit that's like verging on the unexplained or the unexplainable and people wanting answers because this is, this has happened in reality. And so when you take a show like Unsolved Mysteries, for example, I, one of my favorite episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, I saw solved later in my life on an episode of Forensic Files. And I thought that was fucking crazy as shit because it was the creepiest. It, it hails as one of the creepiest episodes of Unsolved Mysteries I've ever fucking seen. And then... 20 years later in life, like I'm watching that as a toddler, you know, not a toddler, but, you know, seven, eight year old kid. 
And then, you know, 34 and 35, I'm watching Forensic Files and I'm like, holy shit, the creepiest episode, you know, I ever saw just got fucking solved through forensics. You know, there was there was always something gratifying about watching the old unsolved mysteries and you're watching the episode and all of a sudden it tells you that there's been an update, an update, an old case. And you can't help but be like, oh, my God. And, and, you know, they'll reveal like, you know, they found out that there was an old, you know, 72 year old gardener that you know, ended up, you know, beating people to death and hiding them in his fucking shed. And, you know, in, you know, Knockham, Sockham, fucking Ohio, wherever the fuck those little boonhawk towns are. But it's always interesting that, um, you know, it, like when those old little updates came up, you feel like even yourself that there was some le- there was some level of justice. Totally. You're, you're excited. You're vindicated. You're, like, yeah, you're vindicated. Yeah, you're All right, of your worry and concern has been put at ease now. See, right. and, and, here, and here's what's, you know, as, as you mentioned that, um, I couldn't help but think of. So when you're, you're, you're watching these, you're watching these episodes and you, you get caught up in it and then the updates come on. There's this site. Um, it's a free streaming site called Tubi. I don't know if Tubi can listen, but I'm plugging you, and I like you guys. Um, <laughs> it's basically like Netflix, except it's for free. You just give them your email address. They don't spam you with email, but it gives you just an easier, you know, a better ease of access to the website. And it's a bunch of it, it, it's a majority a bunch of throwbacks. Like every season of and every episode of Alf is on there. Um, all of the old original Robert Stack hosted Unsolved Mysteries are on there. But the beauty of this is, is because Unsolved Mysteries was a program up until shit, I think 2014, um, until it had its like momentary lapse, and then Netflix picked it back and re- reinvigorated it. So they have updates from you're you're watching episodes on season one, you know, episode one, and it's updated where it's like 2008. This person was caught through this, and you're just like so watching through this streaming source. You, it's like you get to see all these closed cases now coming, you know, like finally being, finally being put to rest. And it's just like, Holy shit. And, and you're right. It is vindicating. It's, it's like, you do feel like sweet. So when I watch forensic files and I'm like, they finally caught that son of a bitch. Like I was just like, I was, I was actually very happy. I was like, yes, that piece of shit's been pinched. And, And that's what we want, right? We watch unsolved mysteries, not because we're, we're, you know, I mean, partially because we're enthralled by the horror that certain people people have experienced, um, but it's also because we want to see the bad guy get caught. I mean, there's very few cir- circumstances where I'm going to root for the bad guy. You killed an old lady, fuck you, go to jail. Uh, you robbed a bank, nah. If you didn't kill anybody in the process or hurt anybody, I say if you can get away, good on you, buddy, because the bank robs us every single day. Uh, so, so Neo, um, what's a uh... What are you doing um, for some content this weekend? What do you got some anything interesting that you're going to be watching? Uh, yeah, I'm going to check out. Um, what's that? Uh, it's that Guy Ritchie movie, The Gentleman. I'm going to check that out. Um, oh, I, yeah. I actually haven't seen that one yet, um, despite its phenomenal cast. So I watched a trailer and looks like a good time. And then I think I'm going to revisit uh, the Seven Five documentary on uh, New York City police crew of corrupt cops that were. Uh, off the rails. So I'm um, looking forward to those ones. 
Right. You were selling it, telling me that uh, that was a true story about these guys um, from the 70s or 80s that were that were corrupt. Or Yeah, there was uh, from the 75 precinct in the uh, early mid 80s when um, the crack e- epidemic had hit. And it was basically the most violent precinct in New York, in the world, actually, um, in the free world. And they had a homicide, like seven homicides a day kind of thing going on and just mayhem, craziness and uh in the midst of this chaos, there was this one ringleader of a cop who formed a crew of willing cohorts, and he decided to, because of all the chaos going on, he knew that he could operate with a certain level of uh, immunity simply, but, you know, too much going on for what he was doing to even be noticed. So right, it's actually right. it's actually really crazy when you, you when, when you start to hear what these guys were doing. And I, I definitely feel they uh, they pulled away from divulging the true like a lot of the things that they were doing they talk about one situation dropping a guy off to their dominican drug lord to get murdered and you mean to tell me that like you didn't do other th- it was just that one time and that's not even when you guys quit or got caught so it's just it's a crazy wild story and uh probably the best documentary i've seen which is why i want to watch it again all right man i'll definitely check that out uh, i think uh for myself um I, I you know i just finished uh re-watching the trial of chicago seven um, I, I firmly believe for myself that was the best film I saw this last year. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of movies come out, um, but Aaron Sorkin as a writer uh, appeals to me. But I am intrigued into this Nexium sex cult that uh, they, they got two documentaries out. One is called Seduced. And the other is called the Vow, and uh, ah, I've heard of the Vow, yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a eight part miniseries uh, that dives really really deep with um, some defactors of the cult. They bailed out, and uh, one of them happened to be a filmmaker. Uh, lucky for him, that's right. And he and the nice thing is he documented while he was in the cult. He documented everything because he honestly thought he was just doing a a documentary on this great um, leader called uh, Keith Raniere. And he was, he had a fucking, you know, name called Vanguard. That was his, uh, that was his moniker. That was what everybody called him. And so, you know, he, he cataloged all this stuff. And then he basically, uh, once he quit the cult and he realized it was pretty fucked up, he was like, Hey, I got a lot of content. (laughs) (laughs) So so it's a great documentary. The other one's called seduced. Um, and it's, um, uh, more about one particular, um, India Oxenberg. Um, and, uh, it's about how she got involved. And, uh, again, this is all with Alison Mack, uh, the actress from the TV show Smallville. That's right. That's right. And, uh, so anyway, Keith Raniere got 120 years, uh, last month, uh, for, for his participation in the sex cult. Alison Mack's trial is coming up or her sentencing is coming up, uh, beginning of the new year. So I'm, I'm definitely intrigued. Uh, if, if he got 120 and, uh, and she was even complicit in, in some regard, you're looking at probably at least 20, at least 20. And uh, it'd be interesting to see if it goes a little higher. So yeah, uh, wow, yeah. man. So yeah, that's intriguing. Um, I, I'm gonna have to it, check it, that out. Uh, yeah, please do. Um, Neil, uh, thanks very much uh, for uh, be kind. Please rewind. I thought we uh, this was great, man. A great talking to you. Absolutely, um, pleasure um, was all say, mine, Rurik. <laughs> I will say, uh, just like I'm gonna leave everybody on a quote, uh, one a really great film quote uh, that uh, really describes uh, how I feel about film, and I'm sure for Neil as well. Uh, I would travel down to hell and wrestle a film away from the devil. 
if it was necessary. Uh, Werner Herzog. So, um, all right, everybody. Thanks for uh, thanks for showing up, and uh, we'll see you next week. This has been The President's Neck is Missing, your quasi-intellectual guide through today's modern world. Catch these idiots once again in our next episode. Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself.